that we love You so much and we're so grateful for Your love for us and for Your grace and for Your goodness and for forgiveness of sin, Lord. And all of the things, the many, many, many blessings that roll to us. And Lord, thank You for who You are and for what You have done for us. And we come to declare that You are our Lord and our King and our Savior. And we bless and praise You in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. Well, you guys sound amazing. That was awesome. What a great time of worship. Joey and Debbie, thank you so much for leading us this morning. Uh, it was great. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open to Nehemiah chapter 1 this morning, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And uh, for the next few weeks, we are going to be studying this great book. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun as we get an opportunity to uh, to go through uh, and watch the life of Nehemiah and uh, and some of the things that he is about. But let me give you some context uh, about Nehemiah as we start this series. Uh, and I'll explain some things as we go through the morning uh, about some of the stuff you see on the stage here. But um, context-wise, as far as you, you think about this book and where we're going to come into, in the year 586 B.C., Babylon conquered Jerusalem. And in the process of them conquering Jerusalem, they destroyed completely the city walls and the temple. And so what you find in the time of Nehemiah is a city of Jerusalem that's in ruins. And so as we think about Jerusalem, here's what takes place following the siege. When Babylonian kings would take over a territory, an area, what they would do is they would remove the strongest and the brightest and the most intelligent and the best looking uh, and the most powerful. They would remove all of those people from a city and take them out of that city and back to Babylon. And they would incorporate those people into the, the culture of Babylon. So what does that leave behind in the city that they've conquered, in the, the nation that they've, uh, they've conquered? It leaves the weakest, the ugliest, and the, uh, the, the unimportant and those people who don't have a lot of great intelligence. It leaves all of the weakest people behind. And so what Babylon did in this time was they put a puppet king basically left in charge to rule over Jerusalem, to rule over Israel. But this king was forced to pledge his allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And so with that context, now we want to fast forward 142 years. And as we get to the time of Nehemiah, 142 years has passed. The year is now 444 B.C. And we're introduced to this man named Nehemiah that we're going to follow for the next several weeks. And for the weeks during this study, the life of Nehemiah, we're going to watch what God uses him to do in the life of the Jewish people. Now, when you think about the book of Nehemiah, what's the thing that kind of comes to mind the most? For those of you who know the story, you typically end up thinking about Nehemiah rebuilding a wall, right? And that's the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to rebuild the wall. But I would say this morning and as we start this series that the most important thing that we're going to discover is not that a wall gets rebuilt. It's that God chooses to use Nehemiah to restore his people. And so if you're taking notes this morning, just write this on your, your blanks. Because as we associate this, uh, this story, we need to understand what's going on. Throughout the series, we're going to discover that God is not as concerned about rebuilding a wall as he is about restoring his people to himself. And so the process of Nehemiah's life in, in using his talents and gifts and what God calls him to do is to restore God's people back to a place of authentic worship of God. And so in our lives a lot of times, when you think about the things in our lives that get broken and damaged, I imagine you're like me, you think about your life that we cry out to God to rebuild those things, 
When something goes wrong, when there's something that's broken, when there's something that's damaged, when there's something that happens that's, that's a negative kind of influence in your life, the first thing you do is cry out to God to rebuild those things. Give me back what I had treasured and valued so much. And yet what we might find as we go through this study is that sometimes the things that get broken in our lives and that we beg to have rebuilt and restored, God is not interested in doing those things because what He really wants to do is restore us to Himself. He wants to deepen our faith. And it might be that that thing that God allowed to be broken in your life, that thing that God took from you, it very well could be that that's been a hindrance to you in following after Him. And that He wants to leave those things destroyed. He wants to leave those things in ruins, but He wants to rebuild your life. He wants to restore you to a place where you understand His glory and His goodness. And so there are things that we oftentimes just cry out to God, give me this back, rebuild this in my life, let me have that, I miss that, I want that so much. And God's going, I know you do, but that's not what's important to be rebuilt. What I want to do is not rebuild the things that you've lost, I want to restore you to a place where you have greater faith, deeper understanding of who I am, that you'll walk with me, that you'll know me, that you'll trust me. And so we're going to see a lot of those things take place in the book of Nehemiah. So we're calling this book, uh, or this study, R.E. So you see the letters on the stage here, R.E., and you kind of go, that's not a word, that doesn't mean anything, right? But throughout the series, throughout the study, what you're going to find in the book of Nehemiah are all these R.E. words. And so you can even see some of them, not on that screen, but on the one I think we've got, there we go. Uh, You see all these different things that God wants to relieve people, He wants people to return, to renew, to repair, to rebuild. He refreshes, He's looking for repentance. There's all these R.E. type words that just continue to come up in the book of Nehemiah. And so we're going to be studying all of these different things and looking through the lens of some of these R.E. type words that help us know what God wants to do in our lives to restore us to a place where we're following Him and living with Him in faithful obedience every day of our life. So that's kind of the uh, objective of what we're doing. And with that as the backdrop, I want us to look at the story together. So if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's read just the first four verses together to start. And Nehemiah 1.1 says this, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Jerusalem with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now let's stop there this morning just to kind of give some more context. When you think about what what Nehemiah writes here, he says this, In the month of Kislev, Kislev would have taken place between what our calendar would be mid-October to mid-December. And so when you think about that, the Jewish calendar operates differently than our calendar. The Jewish calendar operates on a lunar calendar schedule. And so from mid-October to mid-December, this would have been about the month of Kislev on the Jewish calendar. So when you start to think about that, we're kind of coming in near that same period of time that this book was originally started to be written. November to December, we're coming into that season of of our calendar year. And so when you see that, that's what you have. Now, you also see that he's in the citadel of Susa. What is the citadel of Susa? Well, this is the winter home of the Persian king. This is where the Persians would go and have their winter retreat, uh, and they would stay there during those months. And so Nehemiah is with the king, and he's in the citadel of Susa. Now, when you hear about the citadel of Susa, there might be another biblical character or story that comes to mind. Anybody remember another person that was in the citadel of Susa? Uh, It was a famous uh, woman, in this case, for a biblical story. It was the story of Esther. 
the story of Esther takes place in the citadel of Susa. And so uh, Esther's story would have been about a generation before Nehemiah's story. Here's just a fun fact for you, and as you study the Bible, you'll notice that Esther's story comes after Nehemiah chronologically in the Bible, but before Nehemiah's story chronologically in history, all right? And so when you think about Esther, you're going to see Esther's story takes place a generation before Nehemiah's, but they take place in the same city, in the citadel of Susa, the winter home of the king. And so here's what we kind of can take from that. When you think about a Jewish person being in the presence of the king, he's wintering there in, the, in, this, uh, in this palace, and even in the, his captivity... God puts his people in the right places at the right time to accomplish his purposes. And that's an important thing for us to kind of remember this morning. That regardless of where you are in your life, God puts you in the right places at the right times to accomplish his purposes. And so I want to just kind of look at a few people. Number one is Esther, the Jewish queen who was in the Persian Empire. And you think about Esther, and we talked about her story just a minute ago. Esther would be used by God to spare his people from total destruction. Do you remember the story? Esther was the uh, beauty pageant queen. Do you remember? Uh, that king uh, had kicked his wife out because she wouldn't do what he wanted. Then he has this like year-long beauty pageant, and all the beautiful, most beautiful women in the country are brought to him. And he chooses Esther, so she's the most beautiful, and she wins his heart. But then uh, for, sh- shortly following that, uh, one of the king's advisors decides that he wants to completely kill all the Jewish people because he's the second highest person in the land. And one Jewish man, Mordecai, will not bow down to him. Well, it just so happens that Mordecai is Esther's uncle and reports to Esther, all of the Jews are getting ready to be killed. You're the queen. Maybe God has put you in this place at this time for a purpose. Go to the king and ask him to spare the Jewish people. And God, through Esther, brings salvation to his people. So we see right place, right time, right person. God's going to do that. Even in her captivity, she rises to that place. You think about Joseph. Another Old Testament person that we look at his life and go, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. But once he's in Egypt, he's, uh, he rises to a position of importance in Potiphar's home. Potiphar's the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. And yet something takes place that uh, is a, a, a lie against Joseph. He finds himself in prison again. And in prison, he ends up gaining respect and favor with the prison master, rises to the highest place of authority in the prison. He's given responsibility. But what's interesting about Joseph is he can interpret dreams. So one day Pharaoh has a dream that cannot be explained, and he's, he's anxious about this dream. And one of his servants who was in prison with Joseph at the same time says, Oh, yeah, I forgot about this guy that I was in prison with. Joseph is a man who can tell dreams. Call him and let him come and tell you your dream. And through Joseph, God interprets Pharaoh's dream. And he saves the nation of Egypt, but he also saves the Israelites. Because Joseph's family back in, in Egypt, or in, in Israel, excuse me, back in Israel was saved. They came to Egypt to find grain and food. And Joseph brought all of the nation of Israel to Egypt, saving them in the process. That right person, right place, right time. He's in captivity. No one would want to be there. But God uses that instrumentally for his glory. Then you think about someone like Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish exile in the same kind of time period as Nehemiah, one of the earlier exiles from Jerusalem. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what takes place? Daniel comes. He's in a position of authority in the kingdom. And even though it's a Babylonian nation, a Babylonian kingdom, he's found favor in the eyes of the king because he's followed after the heart of God. He's done what no one else would do. He's set himself apart for, his pur- for God's purposes in that setting. The king found, uh, found favor uh, on, on Daniel and used him. And so Daniel was given the opportunity to once again bring light to God to the Babylonian people. Daniel prayed every day until finally some of his 
uh, people that were against him found out that's the only way we're going to be able to take Daniel down. Let's make a rule that says nobody can pray except to the king. Daniel goes against that rule and says, I can't disobey God by praying to someone who's not God. So he's thrown in the lion's den, right? You remember the story? Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, but he's spared by God. God saves Daniel's life. And in the process of doing that, when he is brought out of the lion's den, what does the Babylonian king do? The Babylonian king makes a decree that everyone should worship the God of Daniel. And so Daniel brings the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrews, to light in a Babylonian nation, bringing the power of God into a place where he didn't want to be, but he was the right person in the right place at the right time. And God does that in our lives. And the things that we would maybe naturally kind of cry out to and say, God, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this place. I don't want to be in this spot. I don't want to have this situation. I don't want to experience this difficult thing. And God's going, I have you right where I want you. You're the right person. And I've got you in the right place. And it is the right time. And if you'll trust me, I will do something miraculous through you that you can't even begin to imagine right now. And so you wait on God. And instead of crying out to have your life rebuilt, maybe you ask God to show you what he's wanting to restore in you. Where is the faith that you want to restore in me, God, that I would see you, that I would follow you, that I would live for you? And so you cry out to God on those, behalf, on those things. So sometimes if you wonder that, Nehemiah is an example of that. And what we see from these examples and from Daniel and from Joseph and from Esther and from Nehemiah, here's the, the thing you can write on your, your outline. When God wants to accomplish a work, he always prepares his workers and puts them in the right places at the right times. That's what God does. When God wants to accomplish something, he's going to prepare his people by the life circumstances that he puts you through. He's going to prepare you to do the right thing at the right time. And so we see God moving in all of those things. Now, why is Nehemiah in the citadel of Susa in the first place? Well, the end of the chapter actually reveals, and we haven't gotten there yet, but what you're going to find at the end of chapter 1 is that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Now, this isn't just any job, right? I don't know how much you know about being a cupbearer to a king. I don't know if anybody here has ever been a cupbearer to a king or not. Uh, maybe, you know, your spouse, you think that you're the cupbearer to that person. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that, but uh, this is where Nehemiah finds himself. But there are some certain kind of identity traits that the king would look for for someone who is in his place of service. And so let's think about some of these things. Traits of a king's personal servant. This person would have had to be handsome. This would have been someone who was cultured. This would have been someone who was knowledgeable in court procedures. It would have been someone who had wisdom to converse with the king and advise him if he was asked. Now this is a person that the king trusts immensely. Here's what the cupbearer does. The cupbearer samples all of the king's food and drink before the king eats it. Can I sign up for that job? That sounds okay, right? I'm going to get the best delicacies of the kingdom. Well, not so fast, my friend, Lee Corso would say. Here's what you need to understand and know. You could also be poisoned in the process of this. Because this is the kind of uh, the, the person who would step in front of the king, so to speak, and say, I'll take the bullet for you, and I'll make sure that your food's not poisoned, your drink isn't poisoned, so that in case it is, I'll die so you don't have to. Right? And so this is an important position. The king's going to trust this person. And to think of the fact that a Jewish man has risen to this place in rank shows a lot about the character of Nehemiah. And so as you're starting to think about who Nehemiah is, what's going on in this, uh, this story, you can kind of get this idea that a Jewish person who speaks the name of God and follows the heart of God is raised to a place of importance in this kingdom. And he's given a job of priority where he's with the king and he's 
potentially an advisor to the king. Now, it's important that you say, if the king asks. He has to be wise about how to answer the king. But the important thing there is, if the king asks. Because you don't just go up to the king and go, hey, i got an idea about that. You could lose your head, right? If you think back to the story of Esther, Esther would not even be allowed to go to the king unless she was summoned. And she was his wife. She would take it on herself and say, if I go and I'm not invited, the king has to extend his golden scepter showing that it's okay for me to come into his presence. And if he doesn't, the next thing that's going to happen to me is I'm going to die. And so you don't just enter into the court of the king lightly. You don't just come in and go, I'll do whatever I want to do. If you're asked, that's going to be important when we get to the end of chapter 1 and next week when we start chapter 2. So think about that in your mind over the next week. But one day as Nehemiah serves in the king's court, he saw one of his brothers. And I want to pick up again in verse 2. Listen to what takes place as he's serving in the court of the king. Hananiah, one of my brothers. We don't know if that means a biological brother or if he's a Jewish brother. We're not really, uh, we're not really sure. But he says, one of my brothers who came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the expression before. Anybody ever heard the expression, you can take the country out of the boy, but you can't take the boy. Or you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Let's get the expression right, right? Uh, so you can take the, the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. I kind of felt like that when I moved to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth uh, about 14 years ago, 13 years ago. We got there, and it was just kind of like, all right, now you're a city boy. It's like, no, I'm not. I am still very much a country boy in the city, okay? You cannot take that out of me. I am still going to be country bumpkin. Uh, and so that's just who I am. But when you see Nehemiah, you see he's not a country boy necessarily, but the heart that he has that beats for his country is still there. Here's what's amazing about that. Nehemiah had never lived in Judah. He had never been to Israel. He had never seen Jerusalem. And yet this Israelite man who reflects on what God is doing back in his home country, his heart is there. He has a heart that beats for his people and for that city. And so you kind of start to see this image of what Nehemiah is all about. He had never lived there. He's born in captivity, but his heart beats for that place. Now, almost a hundred years earlier, the king had made a decree that the Jewish people were allowed to leave Babylon, Persia, and go back to Jerusalem if they wanted to. And there had been a remnant of people who left and went back to Jerusalem. And so when you see Nehemiah ask Hananiah, hey, tell me about the remnant who's returned. There's been a hundred years of history now of people who have gone back to Jerusalem who have lived there. And Nehemiah is anxious to find out in a hundred years what's taken place. You might expect for there to be a thriving city. You might expect for there to be great worship that's taking place, that they've reinstituted temple worship, that the sacrifices of God are taking place again. You would expect all of these things to happen over the course of a hundred years, right? This past week, we remembered September 11th. And we had the anniversary of September 11th. And we can see in the last 14 years, 15 years, how, how, where our country has moved to after just that short of a period of time. And so after 100 years, you might think, wow, there should be a thriving community living in Jerusalem. There should be great things that are happening here. The walls should be rebuilt. The temple should be rebuilt. Priestly worship and all of the things of the temple should be reinstituted. And yet what Nehemiah finds is that that's not the case. And so when he asks about these things, he's not going to like the response. Look at Nehemiah 1.3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so here's the three words that can sum up what Nehemiah learns about this. And if you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first one is remnant. There's been a remnant of people 
And we're going to talk about that. The second one is ruins, but the third word is reproach. And so let's talk about these three things. There's a remnant. Though the people have been back in the land for a hundred years, they're not a thriving nation. They're still just a remnant. They're still just a small group of people who are living in the city. They're not thriving. They're just surviving. And so what you find out is that this remnant who has returned has been there, but the walls of the city are still broken down. If you were to go back and read in Ezra chapter 4, Nehemiah and Ezra are written at the same period of time. They correspond. In fact, they're going to interact with one another later in the story. But in Ezra chapter 4, you find letters that are written from Ezra back in Jerusalem, the priests that have gone back to Jerusalem, back to the king in Babylon. And they had come under great attack. The people were trying to stop them from rebuilding the temple, stop them from rebuilding the walls. The people had written letters as well to the king. And the king said, that nation cannot rebuild its walls. I've allowed them to go back, but we're not going to allow them to let Jerusalem be rebuilt. And so over all this time, the king that Daniel serves, or excuse me, that Nehemiah serves, that same king has written back and said, stop the progress of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so when Nehemiah hears about these things, he's uh, he's brokenhearted over it. Let's look at the next thing, that the city's in ruins, that the city walls are not there. And so we see that the people then, the third thing, are living in reproach, that the people are living in great trouble and disgrace. Without a wall, they have no protection. Anybody can come in and invade them. There's no protection there. And they're exposed to outside threats. But the wall is not just about protection. Let me tell you a little bit about the culture that they live in. Because we don't understand this. We don't understand giant walls. Now, your house may have a, a fence around the outside of it, a privacy, privacy fence. Uh, this is a little bit different context. Think about the walls of a city. It doesn't just represent protection and safety from invading forces. The strength of a wall around the city in this culture also represented the strength of their God. And it also represented the strength of their military. In the same way that when their military went out, if they won a victory, people in this culture would say their God is stronger than our God because he gave them favor over our God with a military victory. So the wall of Jerusalem represents the power of the people of Jerusalem's God. So they're in reproach because when the people see it, the walls of Jerusalem still being in ruins makes the God of Israel mocked in this culture. And everybody's looking at Jerusalem saying there, there's no God in Jerusalem. There's no God who protects his people. And Nehemiah hears about this and is broken over it because he knows the power of God. He knows the might of God. He knows what God can do. And he's brokenhearted over the fact that the people are living without the protection of a wall and they're seen in reproach. They're, they don't have any way to defend themselves. And the people are seeing that God is not powerful or that's what they believe. And so Nehemiah is broken over this. So look at Nehemiah's response in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted, and I prayed to God, the God of heaven. And so here's what we see. The next blank's on your outline. Nehemiah heard the news of Jerusalem's reproach, and he sat down and he wept. And he prayed and fasted for many days. Now here's something just tangibly that we can learn from Nehemiah. Fellas, I want you to pay specific attention to this one, okay? Ladies, it's not that you shouldn't, but guys, this is just a little bit more for us. Sometimes in our haste to want to fix things, we skip the important steps of mourning and fasting and seeking God before we just rush right into doing whatever we think needs to happen. And in our haste to do things, we don't cry out to God. It doesn't, only approach, uh, it doesn't only apply to fixing what's broken. Sometimes it, apply, it applies to having an opportunity presented to us. We have an opportunity presented and we don't stop and pray and seek God. We just rush out for the opportunity. 
We just grab a hold of it and take it, not even knowing if it's what God really has for our lives. Every opportunity that gets put in front of you may not be a God opportunity. And so you need to understand that the first thing we can do is that we stop, we seek God, we fast, we pray to Him, and we ask Him for His favor. Now, guys, God has kind of hardwired us to be problem solvers. And every lady in the house said, yes, we are aware, right? Uh, And here's the issue, though. Sometimes our wives don't want us to fix the problem as much as they just want us to identify with their hurt. And what we see in Nehemiah is that he doesn't hear there's a problem, the walls are down. All right, let's go fix the wall. The first thing he does is he identifies with the hurt of the people. He sits down before God. He gets on his knees. He mourns. He weeps. He prays. And he fasts. And he seeks God. He doesn't just jump into action. And so for us, when problems we face or opportunities arise, our first action shouldn't be to move forward. Our first action should be to bow down. And those are the next blanks that you're following on your outline this morning. When we have a problem that presents itself or an opportunity that arises, our first action shouldn't just be jump in, move forward, go. The first action that we should take is to bow down, to seek God. Ask Him what He's about. What does He desire? What does He want for you? What's His plan? Is this even a God thing? Or is this something that's just out there? There are a lot of opportunities that present themselves. There are a lot of problems that we face, and they're not all straight from God. So we need to be aware of those things. Nehemiah's response to the news is to stop everything and get on his face before God and seek his plan. So let me ask you a few questions this morning. How do you respond when problems arise? What's your response when a problem arises? Do you just jump into action and try to fix things? Here's another question. What do you do when an opportunity presents itself? I mean, when that apple's dangled out in front of you and an opportunity presents itself, What do you do? Are you the kind of person that just jumps in and runs hastily toward it without consulting God? Here's the third question. What's your response when you look at the moral landscape and the brokenness of our country? Do you blame other people or past generations for the problems that we see all around us? Man, isn't it easy now, 14 years, 15 years past September 11th, 2001, to see how many blame games are going on in our country? It's everybody else's problem. If the previous generations had done this, if the previous administrations had done this, if these people had done this, and it's always everybody else's problem, nobody's willing to step up and take responsibility themselves for right now. What's going on? What's God doing? What do we see? So how do you live in a world where things are broken? Do you blame other people for the problems? Nehemiah doesn't do any of those things. Nehemiah prays and fasts. Now, for a lot of us, you go, that is so counterintuitive. I just want to jump up and go fix the problem. I just want to go handle what's right in front of me. I'm one of those kinds of people. I see a problem. I don't want to stop and pray and fast about it. I want to go and fix the problem. I want to make sure that that problem gets solved, that we move forward. And yet what we learn from Nehemiah is that that's not how he acted. Let me give you just a couple of things to think about. This is one of the reasons for us that beginning today, our church, we're calling our church to a period of 30 days of prayer and fasting that we're going to ask our church family to join us as elders 
to pray and fast. We see opportunities in front of us that God's doing great things. We can look around this morning and see a room that's full of people and just go, man, we need to present more opportunities for people to come and worship here. We need to make more space for people to do that. So we need to to move to a second worship service potentially, and yet we're seeking and asking God before we just go and do that. We want to pray and ask God, what's your plan? What are you going to do? How do we approach this the best way possible? We see potential for a lot of things that are coming in our church, but we want to experience God's favor by seeking after Him, not running ahead of Him. And so that's why today we're going to call our church to a period of days of 30 days of prayer and fasting. When you leave this morning, there are going to be ushers at the doors, and they're going to hand out a guide that for the next 30 days will guide you through what it looks like to all join together and pray and fast over the same things for the same purposes with the same intentions together for 30 days. And we would invite you to participate in that with us. And so please pick up one of those prayer guides when you leave today. We want you to start with us. The prayer and fasting is going to start tomorrow. Uh, and on a few days of the week, on Monday and Wednesday, I think specifically, for those of you who would like, uh, during lunchtime, we're going to have the buildings going to be open, and we would like to call you during your, your fasting, during lunch, to come up and join us to pray together, that we could gather and corporately pray, so that we're all praying together. For those of you who work and can't get away, we're going to have a few nights of the week that we're going to open the building at night so that from 6 to 8 o'clock you can come up and it's just a come and go as you can, 11 to 1 in the day, 6 to 8 at night. And we're just going to have opportunities for people to come and pray on a couple of different days during the week so that we can be together as a family praying over the same things, asking God to give us direction, seeking what He's doing in our lives. So that's what we want to look to do. Now there's three elements of what Nehemiah does next in his prayer that I want us to look at as we start to close things up this morning. And so I want you to read this with me. Starting at verse 5. The Bible has said that Nehemiah for days has mourned and wept and fasted. And then in verse 5, he begins to record his prayer. And I believe this is a prayer that Nehemiah prayed consistently during this period of time, maybe for several months. And so I don't think this was a one-time prayer. I think this was something that Nehemiah consistently prayed. But listen to what he says in verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, we've committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled and are people at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. And so I want to look at three elements of Nehemiah's prayer as we close up. The first one is this, that verses 5 and 6, Nehemiah goes into a time of intercession. And so if you're taking notes, again, just write down these three things. One is intercession. Nehemiah says he's praying these things on behalf of the people of Israel. Listen to what he says uh, in the end of verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Your servant is praying day and night and, uh, for your servants, the people of Israel. So Nehemiah says, I'm praying, God, but I'm not just, this is not just me to you. I'm praying for the people of Israel. I'm praying on behalf of people who may not be praying. I'm praying on behalf of people who need to have someone praying for them. I am interceding for them. 
my prayer is for Israel. And so as Nehemiah steps up, he starts to, to pray. And I would say this, when we identify with the needs of others, we can't help but to cry out to God on their behalf. When we start to get our hearts interwoven with other people who are experiencing brokenness and pain and hardship, and we see their need, we start to cry out on their behalf. You see the stories of what's taking place overseas. Most of us have never been to Syria and Iraq and Iran, and yet we see the hardship that's going on there. We see the persecution. We see the way that Christians are being treated. And though we're not there, we can intercede on their behalf because our hearts as believers in Christ are attached to them as human beings and fellow believers in Christ. And so we pray on their behalf. We intercede for them. That's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah's prayers come from a place of heartfelt compassion for his people. And so the second element of his prayer is this, his confession. Look at the second half of verse 6. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Now look at what Nehemiah does. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, those previous generations, they screwed things up really bad, and so we're going to blame them. But God, now would you do something? He says, God, listen, I want to pray and confess that I have a part to play in this. Because the same wicked, sinful heart that led the people of Israel hundreds of years ago to rebel against you and sin against you, that you allowed Jerusalem to be conquered, that you exiled the people, that you spread them through the nations, that same wicked heart exists in me today. And that same wicked heart exists in each and every one of us. And Nehemiah says, we're not going to play the blame game because the sin struggle, although I didn't really have anything personally to do with the destruction of Jerusalem, that same sense of brokenness and sin exists in me today that I still rebel against you in the same way that they did. And so I want to confess, God, that my heart and that the heart of my father and my family before me, we've been wicked toward you. And he starts to confess sin. And Nehemiah's sins and the sins of the current generation were causing the blessings of God to be withheld from the nation of Israel. And so for us, when we think about this, if we're going to see God bring revival to our nation, we can't say, man, God would do something if everybody else would repent of all the wrong that they're doing. We need to take personal responsibility for our sin. And God will start to bring revival and awakening to the nation of America when the people of God start surrendering themselves under the authority of God and saying, we haven't lived up to what you've been doing. We haven't held up our end of the bargain of living under your authority. We've taken Christianity so nonchalantly. We have not lived out our faith. We've not pursued holiness. We've not pursued godliness. We've not pursued righteousness. And so we need to wake up for ourselves. We need to confess our sins before God. And when we do that, God will start to bring healing. And so then you see the last thing is the petition. That Nehemiah starts to petition God to remember promises he made to Moses. And so you read in verse uh, verse 8, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. That's what's happened at this point in time in history. But if you return to me, and if you obey my commands, then even if you're exiled, people at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. So God says, look, here was the covenant that I made with Moses. And Nehemiah reminds him of that covenant, not that God had forgotten, but Nehemiah is connecting the promise back to God in prayer. And he's saying, this is what I understand you to be about. This is what your word says. Let's put those two things together. And I am going to petition for you to do what you said you would do. 
It is okay to ask God to do the things He has said He will do. Even if you haven't seen it take place in your life up to this point, you start to pray and say, God, this is what I hear you say you will do. Here's what I'm asking you'll do to match those things up. And so you ask God to do those things. That's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah petitions God to remember His promise made to Moses. If my people will return, I'll restore them to their land and I'll bring healing to it. And so that's where we're going to find Nehemiah. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to walk through this idea of what Nehemiah is doing to seek God about his part of the plan to bring the walls back, to bring not just the walls back, but the people of God back to God. And so we're going to walk through this journey together. But here's the last thing on your outline that I want to close with today. Before we can hope to rebuild, we have to make an honest evaluation of the situation. Before Nehemiah could hope to rebuild what was there, he needed to make an honest evaluation about the situation. Before you can hope to rebuild broken things in your life, places in your heart that are not following after the heartbeat of Christ, before you can hope to do that and rebuild those things or see God restore those things, you have to make an honest evaluation of the situation. Nehemiah knew that the walls were down and the city was unguarded, but the honest evaluation of the situation was that God's people were not living under God's authority. And if we're not willing to live under God's authority, God will not bring His blessing and His power to life. We must submit ourselves to God and ask Him to come and bring His power to us. And so when Nehemiah sees this, he says, if we're not willing to live under the authority of God, God's not going to be willing to restore us. We live in humble obedience to Him, and He'll do things we can't even imagine. So when we see this, I would ask you this question. Have you placed your life under the authority of God? Here's what Nehemiah says in verse 10. They're your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. No matter what you've gone through, God's power to save you and redeem you is so much greater than anything else. He can restore you. He can redeem you. If you've not trusted Him with your heart and your soul as your Savior... I would want you to know this morning that God can bring you into relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. That He desires to take all of the mess of your past, all of the sin of your past, and redeem that for His glory and His purposes. So you can submit yourself to Him. Here's the thing that we sing, and I believe we're actually going to sing these lyrics in just a few minutes. But sin may be strong, but God is strong. The power, the hold, the threat of sin in your life may be difficult, but God is stronger. Look at what Nehemiah says again. They're your servants, your people. You redeem by your great strength and by your mighty hand. Do you believe this morning that God has great strength? Do you believe this morning that God, by His hand, can reach out and pull you into Him and relieve you from the burden that you're carrying, from the sin that you are weighed under? Do you believe that God can do that? God can do that. God can change your life. Regardless of where you are, make an honest evaluation of where you are right now and ask God to change it. Ask God to do what only He can do. Honestly evaluate your life and determine if you're living under the authority of God. And then He'll build you up to be like Jesus. And here's the last thing that I wanted you to see because I think this is important for us as we go into this period of time of 30 days of prayer and fasting. Nehemiah very well, and we could be reading this and feel like Nehemiah is all alone. He's the only one doing this. He's the only one praying. He's the only one seeking God. But listen to what Nehemiah says, verse 10. They're your servants, your people, whom you've redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants 
who delight in revering your name. Nehemiah is not alone. There are other people that are praying. There are other people who are seeking God. There are other people who want to be under God's authority and live the way that God says. You're not alone. You may feel like sometimes you're the only one praying. You're not alone. There are other people who are praying with you. As a church, for the next 30 days, let's pray together. Let's seek God together. Let's see what God desires to build and rebuild and restore and do here at Grace Fellowship Church. Let's seek Him out together. And as we do that, I believe we're going to find the hand of God in all of it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much, and we recognize our need for you. And God, we even this morning confess that we are a people who have not necessarily lived out our lives under your authority. Maybe in some places we have, but not in every area of life. Maybe in some things we're doing pretty well, but we're not surrendering everything to you. And God, today, my hope would be that we would all put ourselves completely under your authority and trust you to do what only you can to bring about life change, to bring about restoration, to bring healing, to bring hope. God, give us a a burden for the things we see around us. Let us honestly evaluate our situation so that we can come before you and just respond to you the way that you desire. God, we love you so much. And we want your touch. We want your power. We want to feel your mighty strength. And we want to feel your hand leading us. So we submit ourselves to you today, God. And we ask for your loving power to guide us. And we ask in Jesus' name. We're going to repeat a song we sang a little.